Welcome to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hanson, hosted by attorneys Sean Garner and Adam Hanson. Good morning, Yuma. This is Sean Garner with Life, Death, and the Law. I'm in studio here with all my good friends, Adam Hanson and Cody Beeson. Welcome, gentlemen. Good morning. And I also have here my daughter, who is back from her mission in North Carolina and New York. Welcome, Gracie. Thank you for having me. So we have a very exciting show for you this morning. We're going to talk about uh, my top 10 pet peeves. No, not really. Um, We're going to talk about the top 10 things that uh, I would do if I were king for the day in updating the Constitution or separate issues and laws that uh, we deal with every day. So I'm going to run down the list real quick, and then we're going to pick and choose. We might be out of order a little bit, and perhaps we won't have time to discuss them all, but I'm going to run down the top 10 things that I would change if I had uh, the authority or if I was present in the assembly for the drafting of the Constitution. Number one, a flat tax. I, I honestly think that uh, our founding fathers believed that a flat tax was the idea uh, when it was being formed, the Constitution, and the ability to tax, the power to tax. Um, but we won't get too deep into that right now. I would have a flat tax rather than a graduated tax where you get taxed more the more money you make or the more you contribute to the society and the economy of our communities, state, and nation. Number two, a balanced budget. I don't think that the federal government should have unlimited spending ability regardless of the amount of income that is brought in. I think they have to balance their budget each year just like the states have to do. Number three, I think there should be some type of course similar to the path to citizenship that individuals that immigrate to the United States have to go through in order to vote. And the reason why is because anything that is acquired too easily is esteemed too lightly. And if you're just born with the right to vote as soon as you turn 18, then you esteem that that ability very lightly and You also don't put a lot of time and effort maybe into understanding the issues or the candidates that you're voting for. So I think that there should be some type of path similar to citizenship. It just makes sense to me. Do people ever reach out to you and say, Sean, who who do I vote for? I know you vote, you went through this stuff. Who should I pick? Um, Probably more... They want to know who I voted for so they understand who to vote against. Because okay. <laughs> I've, I've got that before. I've got where people will just call me and say, uh, just tell me who to vote for. I don't, yeah. I don't care. Just tell me who. Well, that's been me a couple of times. Yeah, you that know, just happened to me this last week. In, uh-huh. in church, a couple of people uh, said they got their ballots in the mail, and they're mm-hmm. like so confused. And uh, so they approached me on it, and, and I have this little handy thing I can text to them, of the like kind of like a cheat sheet, if you're going to take it to the ballot box. A slate. I call it a slate, right? Yeah, but I still, um, it's like a pre-made thing, and uh, I haven't looked into, I started voting him halfway through it, and um, I need to still go through the proposition. So I I, I obviously voted for all the people. I know the people, but the propositions, I got to research a little bit more before I determine which ones I want to vote for, if I want to vote for any of them. My My first inclination to go down that road is to not vote for any any legislation, because uh, that's that's my general yeah. blanket statement. I don't want any further laws to dictate to me or my family how to live my daily life. But at the same time, in the in the times that we're living, 
if you think about it, it might be a law that's not so much about a tax or anything like that, but rather keeping um, some sort of ideology out of our schools or right. out of the out of the healthcare system. So it is important to look at those. Could be and, to prevent a law or a policy from going through. I'll tell you, it's been my experience that if you hear something like, if you look for buzzwords like, well, it's for the children, it's for the children or it's for um, some particular downtrodden group, then it's probably lying to you. Well, they use that for um, the ability to have the lottery or passing the marijuana laws. They say it's for the children. Why? Well, because the tax dollars that come from those types of um, activities are used for public schools often. And so in, they'll shroud the whole policy that they're trying to pass with uh, the promotion that it's going to be for the children. So you're like, oh yeah, I always want to benefit the children. Do we want to legalize prostitution? Well, it's for the children, right? No. Well, okay, it gets sketchy. Uh, okay, let me keep going down my list. Do we though? No, <laughs> <laughs> um, term limits. I think there should be term limits on every public office. I think there should be, I, I like the number 12. 12 is, is kind of like a golden number. And uh, so just think if justices had a term limit of 12 years instead of life, then um, there would be some type of accountability and we would get some fresh blood in there. We've had justices in there for a very long time. Now, fortunately, the justices that have been serving the longest currently are like Justice Thomas, and he's conservative, and I think he's sharp as a tack, and he's doing really good things for the Supreme Court. But there have been cases where justices have been in there that, um, that potentially they, they're past their prime. Well, and not only that, kind of makes more of a game out of it. You know, the, the politics and the elections really kind of make you guess on, on where these people are going to retire or, or die. Exactly. And if what you're saying is there's more structure to it, that you'd remove some of that. Nonsense. We would absolutely know, yes, that uh, their term limit would be up. And so the next president that's going to be voted in is going to have so many appointees to the bench for the Supreme Court justice. Versus wait and maybe don't die. Yeah. yeah. Just just hang in there. Even though you're comatose and you're not contributing to the, the bench at all, you just hang in there until this president resigns or, or um, their term limit's up. Um, so 12 years, that, that's the idea. I like, And I like it for not just, just justices, you know, when you're talking about the Supreme Court, or even federal judges in lower courts, like the appellate courts and the district courts, but I like it also for all Congress members, for senators. Serve two terms, right? Two six-year terms, and then sit out a term. Now, if you want to get reelected after a six-year term, then you're going to have to really stay in it politically to do that. It takes a lot to get that momentum back up. And if the people liked you that much, then go for it. But I, you know, the fact that um, our president right now, the only reason he's still in the game is because there's been this prolonged weekend at Bernie's for the past, you know, eight years that they've just propped him up, and he's been in. He's been in politics so long, and he's been such a common household name. They're like, okay, who can we put in that everybody knows about, that we don't have to rebrand, and uh, we could potentially get some votes for? Oh, okay, we've got this guy Biden out here, Sleepy Joe. Let's put him in, and then we'll just pull the puppet strings on him and do whatever we want. Who, who are his um, caretakers, his handlers, the people behind the scenes really making the decisions? I think that's, that's the great question. Who's the guy behind the curtain, like on Wizard of Oz, with this whole administration? The problem 
initiates with term limits. He's been in the game too long. So you're saying term limits, period. Like you can't go from House to Senate to President and, and make 12 years. No, I think I think as long as you have to switch positions, that's absolutely fine. Okay. But what happens is... Call that the Romney plan. <laughs> constituents, they get used to the individual that's in there and that that person's name gets branded to the extent that they'd never have to go out and demonstrate on their merits what they've done for the people. Like we've got um, Grijalva right now that, you know, he's been in Congress for how long? Decades, Decades yeah. right? And uh, so he is the Congress member for South County. And he, he puts up like a token sign or two here in Yuma to be reelected to Congress. And what has he done? Um, I think there would be some young, fresh blood that would be competing against him or to get that seat if he was term limited out at at 12 years and you're right and it's really hard to have somebody fresh come up because he has all the the packs in his book you know yeah. he, or behind him he has all the money and the support of the establishment behind him and that's and that's the major issue with the corruption in politics is the money so if you have new people all the time coming in then you're going to have to reestablish th those those uh linkages and and those alliances and i think that's a good thing because when you get new people in there you can kind of predict maybe what they're going to do but the the voters at least get a new opportunity with somebody different and i think that's a very good thing so term limits for everybody um whether they're congress members we wouldn't have any more bernie sanders in there right that have been in congress since the dawn of time um okay i would add to that uh a drastic reduction in their salary as well. I think over time, Congress has voted the, up their pay over and over again. I think originally, those that went to serve in Congress, they made very little. It was actually kind of like a side thing. They had their primary job, their money-making job, and then they would serve in Congress as well when they had time. But uh, what it's become now is a complete career. And then once you become, like for example, a senator, once you make senator, I mean, you, you're set for life. You've got that benefits package. You've, you're exempt from the things that you pass for the normal citizenry. And uh, that salary comes with it. I think if we were to drastically reduce the salary or the benefits that come with public office, then less people would, would um, vie for being that and really would cause – it's just a theory. I don't know if it would work or not. But I think it would cause only the best and the most successful people t that really cared – to rise to the top and go for those positions because they've got nothing really to lose. They've, they, well, they have everything to lose. They have their, their daily job, but really they're doing this as a service, kind of like working on a board of directors. Yeah, they're actually being charity. public servants. In fact, that brings me to the next list or the next item on the list here, and that is that um, no lawmakers should be invested in, in uh, stocks and the market. Because if they're lawmakers, they should be public servants. Now, um, I have a financial license as a financial advisor. And so what that means is I have to report to SEC and FINRA all of the activities that I do, all my business activities on a yearly basis. I have to report every business that I'm involved in. And I can't give any type of investment advice that doesn't go through um, the very strict scrutiny of the underwriter that is holding my license, and that's a merit prize. And, and they want, don't want to get hammered by 
at the SEC. So they want to make sure that everything that I'm doing is on the up and up. Now, it's a, it's a bit of a burden for me to disclose that every year, but it's for the safety of the individuals that I'm giving advice to, that I don't have some type of ulterior motive, that I don't have some, some conflict of interest. And so in, in the end, that's a good thing. If I have to do that, just as this lowly old, you know, individuals, citizen that, that doesn't have a lot of sway or, or public authority, I think that certainly our public servants who have been voted into office and, and make legislation and policies should absolutely have to do that. I, that. I know that's becoming a big issue right now that um, Congress members who are getting rich off of trading stock um, shouldn't be allowed to participate in the market anymore. And that's starting to make headlines more and more. I, I would say that's, that's a no-brainer. They need to be out of the game. So we have to take a break now. We'll come back. This is 560 AM KBLU Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law right here after this. Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You're listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. I am Sean Garner, an attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm in studio here with Adam Hanson, Cody Beeson, and my daughter, Gracie Garner. Number six and seven, respectively. The number of justices I don't believe should be able to be changed um, without a constitutional amendment. Currently, it only takes uh, an act of Congress to change the number of justices. And we all know this, at least anybody that hasn't been living under a rock for the past 18 months. No, no pun intended, Gracie. Um, that Congress is, is, and the president are looking to pack the court because they don't like how the Supreme Court is ruling. They don't like that the Supreme Court is saying that certain rights that were previously read into the Constitution by the prior justices don't actually exist because when we read the Constitution, they don't actually, uh, they're not enumerated there. And so they said, well, hold on a second. If the issue is whether or not this is a constitutional right, and of course I'm talking about abortion here, um, let's, let's look at the text of the Constitution. I don't see it. Let's do a word search. Let's put this in a you know, Word document and, and maybe search it up. Maybe we just passed it over. Oh, no, it's still not in there. There's no reference to it whatsoever. So therefore, it is not a constitutional right. If you want to make an amendment, then we can make it a constitutional right. Otherwise, it, it's subject to the laws primarily that states make. It could be a law that is made by the federal government through Congress, but it's not a constitutional right. That's it. We're not good. We're not bad. We're just 
call them balls and strikes here. It's not in the Constitution. It's not a right. So they want to pack the court, um, and they, by the Democrats, primarily um, Joe Biden, and he wants to pass a law, which he, that could be done, and Congress could um, increase the number of justices from nine to 20. And, and the president, of course, nominates all the justices, so now we've got this packed court of liberal justices that are going to create this litany of rights that exist out there that don't exist in the Constitution and uh, don't conform with the rest of what society wants and, and, and uh, is going to benefit our social norms. And what, what it amounts to is it's every time you grant a right to one, I would say, minority population, you, you take the rights of the other individuals away because if, if they're rights, for example, if we have to recognize, I don't know, somebody that uh, identifies as a butterfly and that, that is now a protected class of people, that um, if they Should get fired... furries. Well, the butterfly... I don't think they're very winged furry. furry. Okay. Um, then if they get fired from their job or they don't get the proper service at a restaurant or anything happens to them, they can call that discrimination based on their identification as a butterfly. And I think that would actually impede on the rights of the employers and the restaurant owners. And so rights out there don't just go out and, and make everybody's life happier and better and, and more long-lasting, it can actually impede on the rights and liberties of others. So I think that it's very important that we have a limited amount of justices and they're appointed in a structured way that we can, we, we can uh, be confident that the Constitution will be upheld and interpreted correctly. We call those immutable rights, right? So I think in the Supreme Court, maybe like, ah, I want to talk about the 60s. 60s era, I think, is the, the term where immutable rights came up. And that those are, according to the court, those things that are, they're ingrained in you. You can't change them from birth. That's what you are. You're either a male or a female. Well, back, back then, it was you're either a male or a female. Um, you are black or you're white. So these are protected classes because uh, over time, the Supreme Court has recognized those things as immutable. You're not, you can't change it. You are what you are when you're born. You're either um, you know a male or a female, you're black or you're white, or you're part of this group or you're not. But over time, what you're talking about, Sean, is the court has expanded that or brought in more classes, protected classes, what we would call those, um, in the nomenclature of the Supreme Court to include like uh, homosexual, um, yeah, sexual orientation, gender, gender identity. So these are things that are not necessarily, well, before, you know, this last five years in our, in our society, they hadn't been what we would call immutable. They were choices, if you want to say that. I'm not saying that they are, but that's how the court looked at them. And so now those things are, whether a person um, wants to get married to the same sex individual or whether a person decides that they more align with they're a male. They're born a male, but they they uh, more align with a female gender. Um, those things now are becoming more and more of an issue in the Supreme Court because they're bringing those in and saying, "Well, those are immutable too." You know, it's not it's not a choice these people are making, and they're born like that, so they need to be protected. And so that's that's a hard thing to deal with because the court has to weigh the the society 
the societal uh, not only fears and judgments and and uh, and the repercussions of doing that, but it also has to weigh the scientific data as well as it comes out. And as we all know, science changes just like through the COVID uh, pandemic. We science is not perfect by any means. And so it changes with time day to day. And as we start to learn more, and so it's very hard for the Supreme court. And this, this, this is the issue with, um, that became relevant in the, uh, the Roe v. Wade problem that we've had over the past few decades, because in Roe v. Wade at the time, science was not progressed enough to understand that uh, a, a baby could survive after a certain amount of time. And over the course of the last few decades, as science started to realize, well, the fetus can be viable at this point and then this point. And, and uh, so that ruling became a little bit more narrow and more narrow and became such that the baby and the constitutionality of, of a, a woman's right to decide to an abortion was tied to the reality or the scientific idea that this baby could live if it were to come out right now at the six-week mark or at the 12-week mark. And so this is a good example of how science over time has shown and had an effect on Supreme Court rulings because at the time when Roe v. Wade was first issued, it wasn't known to what we know now as to how a fetus could be viable and and it wasn't probably viable at the point that it is now because back then they didn't have the technology medically to keep a baby alive in an incubator and and supplement what the baby needed if it came out early at a certain point but now as science progressed now we can do that and so as a consequence that roe v wade ruling started to get crunched down further and further closer to the conception date would you argue against that sean no no that that's the whole point and so he, he, the point that I'm making here is that um, we want to have Supreme Court justices that uh, there's there's a fixed number, and so when they make their decisions, um, they don't get to be deluded by Congress just saying, we want more Supreme Court justices because we don't like the decisions that were made. And also the people have some type of uh, understanding as to when that we're going to get new Supreme Court justices. It's just if somebody lives to be 105, they don't just get to continue to serve out that that term. We want set term limits and and some type of structure to interpret the Constitution. I think um, inventing rights from the court that's not actually the court's role. Never has been. It's interpreting the rights that were created by number one our founders in the Constitution. That's the law of the land and other laws that are made by legislatures. It's not to create new rights. That's not. That's not the role of the judges. It's the role of the legislatures and the states to ratify new constitutional amendments if we want to include more rights in there. And of course, that's that's a very difficult and arduous process. You have to have two-thirds of both the House and the Senate to pass that legislation, that, that proposal for a new amendment, and then it has to be ratified by three-quarters of the states. Obviously, it's only been done, I think, 27 times. Yeah. Like uh, oh, so, so I shouldn't say obviously because I don't even know the answer to it. <laughs> <laughs> sure, <laughs> but, that sounds good. Yeah. So it's, it, I think that. it's 27 times. Yeah. And um, we'll get our fact checker on that. So it, it, it's relatively few. In fact, um, there's only been one amendment. Here's, here's the quiz for the day. What constitutional amendment 
was made that was ultimately repealed? There's only been one. Prohibition. Prohibition. Yeah. Nice. Which one was it? Which amendment? Uh, 20? Was it 20? It was 18. 18, yeah. And then it was repealed in 21, and with amendment 21. Okay. And again, our fact checkers will get on that. But uh, the point is, it's difficult to make those constitutional amendments, which it should be. And uh, so that leads me into the next thing that I would do if I was king for the day, and that is make statehood, the incorporation of a new state into the union, similarly difficult, because it can be done the same way that uh, justices can be, or a new number of justices can be appointed to the court, and that is simply through the Congress making a new law and accepting that state. So right now, if uh, Washington, D.C. wanted to be a state, which it does, um, and it went through the House and the Senate, was signed into statehood by the president, then there you go. It now becomes a state. And that has some huge ramifications, and the balance of power between the two parties, the Republicans and Democrats, would would change significantly. And I think that that's too much power to leave just in to the hands of the controlling uh, parties that, that be. Right now, Congress is controlled all by Democrats, so the Senate and uh, the, the presidency. Uh, I'm surprised they haven't pushed harder for that. Maybe they got bigger fish to fry. I mean, they really don't even qualify for a congressman at this point. There are 700,000 people in D- the D.C. area. Well... So um, in order to qualify for a congressman, um, first of all, if you're a state, exactly, yeah, you get one representative and you get two senators automatically if you're a state. Yeah. And uh, right now they don't have any um, representatives in the House and they don't have any senators. So they don't have any representation in Congress from Washington, D.C. They do get three electoral votes because the citizens in um, Washington, D.C. actually didn't have any participation. They didn't have any voice as to who would be the president of the United States um, until the 1970s. And in the 70s, um, I I believe it was Lyndon B. Johnson that uh, signed into law that they would have three electoral votes. And so they could vote and wherever um, the popular vote came down in from the citizens of the District of Columbia, then those three electoral votes would go to represent that population. I mean, in in all fairness, there's five million people in the area, but most of those people fall into Virginia, Maryland, and other places, so. And that was my first thought is, I wouldn't, rather than make DC its own state, I mean, it's so small geographically, I would have it just be absorbed by either Maryland or Virginia and call it a day. Didn't well, they donate but, land to make it. Yes, so Maryland donated land to make it, and so did Virginia, and uh, so it originally was a hundred square miles, and that is actually in the Constitution that it can only be a hundred square miles. That's the maximum amount of land that it could be, and the idea was that the the capital of the nation wouldn't sit in any one state because that that would give preference to that state wherever it sat. And so they wanted to have it as its own independent territory. And that's where the idea came from. And it's a great idea. The question is, how do the people that live in that territory get representation as citizens in the United States? And it's a good question to address. But whether or not they become a state, I think, needs to be subject to constitutional amendment. We have to go to a break. This is 560 AM, KBLU, Life, Death, and the Law. More thought-provoking conversation coming up next on Life, Death, and the Law, right here after this.
Hey, you, my Dave Ramsey here. If you listen to our show or know anything about us, then you know I only recommend products and services I trust and I believe in. That's why when it comes to protecting your assets and planning for your loved one's future, you've got to call my friends Sean Garner and Adam Hansen at the law firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen. I encourage you to take the first step and attend a free, no-pressure seminar and learn all of your options. The firm of Deason, Garner, and Hansen has been educating the Yuma community for over 40 years, and this is the only area of law that they practice. Sean and Adam believe in giving free education to help people make smart decisions about their assets and help them leave a legacy for their family that they can be proud of. Schedule a free personal consultation today. Call 783-4575 or visit YumaEstatePlanning.com. You are listening to Life, Death, and the Law, presented by Deason, Garner, and Hanson, the law firm that has been voted Yuma's best six years in a row. Welcome back, Yuma. This is Sean Garner, attorney with Deason, Garner, and Hanson. I'm in studio here with Cody Beeson, Adam Hansen, and my daughter, Gracie Garner, who recently returned from a full-time mission in both um, upstate New York for four months and then North Carolina for the remaining uh, 12 months of her mission. Oh, that's only 16. Um, so 14 months of her mission. Okay, that's lawyer math for you. And uh, so, Gracie, before we jump back into the topics of the, the things that I would change if I were king, um, she hears way too much of what I would do if I were king at home. So I want to hear about uh, your excursion to the east and northeast. How was it in New York? What did you do? Was it worth it? Would you change your mind if you had the choice again? Oh, it was amazing. I loved getting to be in New York. Um, there I specifically got to be in some church history sites, so I got to explain to a lot of people where our church started and what we believe and why we believe it. And North Carolina was amazing. I've never got to be um, in that part of the East Coast and specifically what is considered the South. And I loved it there. Southern hospitality is real. And people really do love Jesus as much as they say. <laughs> so you're in the prime of your life, mm-hmm. um, 20 years old when you decide to go out and serve a mission. And uh, of course, I know the answers to a lot of these questions I'm going to ask, but just for our listeners out there, how much do you get paid to go out and be a missionary? It's a question we actually get a lot while we're out there, but we actually um, pay to go. So I spent um, most of my high school years saving up to be able to go and serve the people wherever I was assigned. So why would you do that? Why at 20 years old when you have everything before you, you could travel, you could go to school, you could work and, and, and get cars and, and have boyfriends. Why would you give all that up to go serve on, serve a mission and essentially serve the people? And, and what was your end goal in doing that? Uh, I think that's a question I'd ask myself a lot, but it really started from I wanted to do something important and something that meant something to me. And I was going to school at the time and loved it, but I knew there was something that I could do that'd have a greater effect. And that was helping people to find the gospel and really have that joy in their life. But it really came down to me knowing that there was nothing more important than having that knowledge of, of Jesus Christ. I 
I wouldn't change it for the world. In fact, I don't think there was anything that was greatest impact in those 18 months of just serving without, you know, really getting anything other than just the joy of helping others. When I think of uh, North Carolina, I think maybe, Sean, what you're asking was, or I think what you're referring to, North Carolina, the South, is the Bible Belt. And so you've got a lot of Baptists, you've got a lot of different uh, denominations that are very convicted in their beliefs, and that's awesome. That's really good. So how was your experience with that when you would, uh, I mean, was it a... Was it a cordial experience with other faiths, you know? Uh, were they more inclined to get in a fight with you? Yeah, I I would say overall, in general, the people there were very loving. You know, we wear name badges and they say J- Jesus Christ, so people saw that and accepted it. But on the other hand, the people who I think we got the most... Um, Maybe the most rude remarks, the most unkind things were people who claim to be other Christians. Like the nicest people, I think, were the atheists. They were so kind to us, and they appreciate what we did, but they were very kind about turning that, us away. That's a great irony out wow. there. In fact, I, I find that too. If somebody comes to me and he's either looking to do business or uh, looking for some type of favor, and they they start with, "Well, I'm a Christian," so basically they're premising it with. What I'm about to say is good. And I know right off the bat that if they have to start with that, then um, I need to put on my defenses and, and keep my guard up. Because it's like saying, well, I'm not going to lie to you. Well, why would you, why would you say that? <laughs> Did I have to assume you were going to lie to me unless you, you tell me up front you're not going to? So uh, you, you experience that firsthand. The people that profess very outwardly to be Christian demonstrated very unchristian-like characteristics. And those who were just out there trying to be good human beings and didn't have to label it be under the, the, the veil of Christianity were genuinely good human beings. Or they could be jerks, too, but at least they weren't trying to disguise it and justify it because, right. well, I'm doing this in the name of such and such religion. Right. I think that's justifiable. I mean, to a certain extent, if you think about it, your religion or your beliefs, those are incredibly personal and so for another person like Gracie to come into my house and say, well, you're doing okay, but I can show you how to do it better, or I've got this slant on things, uh, basically what you're saying is you're wrong and I'm right. And so you can see why people get a little bit uh, defensive about that, because they, wanna, they don't want to be told that they've been doing something wrong their whole life that is so ingrained in their person or in their belief system. And for somebody like Gracie to come in and she does it better than anybody else and explain why she is out there, why she's doing what she's doing, what she truly believes and how she came to understand what she understands and knows, then that can be seen as a personal affront to another person. I've seen in my own life through that experience that uh, there are ways to do it and there are ways that really come only through a certain means, and that's not through the person itself like Gracie. It's really through God himself. But, but uh, as, as, a, as a Christian person, hearing a different message, I mean, we get this all the time, Sean, where you have, we have all sorts of different employees in our, in our office. Some go to church, some do not. Some have um, atheistic, if you want to call it that, Gracie uh, beliefs. And um, we all coexist. We all commingle. We all, we, I think getting back to 
the yeah. basic psychology. I think of, we have a wonderful diversity in our office. Yeah, quite honestly, I yeah. think if you were just to take a little pool of what what the beliefs are and what the social economic backgrounds are and what the race is and what the genders are and what the sexual orientation is, it's honestly I'm putting it all out there. It's it's a wonderful diversity, and I think that's a good thing because we all get along. And we've demonstrated that that's possible. Why are you laughing, Cody? Because legally we can't do that. Can't do what? We can't legally take a survey and ask people those questions. Oh, get a pool of it? But you can. But if you you did. become friends and you get to know each other, I get it. If I were to say that that exists. So you can't ever fact check me on that. (laughs) I know, right? And so I can just say it exists. (laughs) But it does exist. And I'm not going to lie to you, Cody. No. (laughs) Because you're a Christian. (laughs) Because I'm a Christian. (laughs) I think uh, if... If you were to look at this, what is this called? The, the study of so, uh, our social behavior or our culture, really, it all comes back to, and I'm not, a, I'm not an expert uh, by any means, but um, everything really comes back to, we were talking about this the other day, Sean, I don't know if you remember, it was about a week ago or two weeks ago, but the idea that a person professes to be an atheist really comes to the point that uh, they, we, when I come into this conversation, you're going to have a basic bedrock of understanding that's why we can communicate to each other is because we we already have we're starting at a place where we have a basic bedrock of culture and so we can start from there and build on that we might believe different things but we're all going to have this basic bedrock of culture that bedrock of culture is all tied back to if you were to study uh, sociology for example the study of cultures and where it all exists it all comes back the more the more streams you have back to a certain source the more true that source is and when when you talk about western society all roads lead back to the bible so the bible really is the underpinning or the undergirding of of our society and our culture so even an atheist from their perspective if they don't if they profess to not believe in a particular god they're, do, they're coming from that angle, from a culture that believes in God, mainly because our culture is founded on the Bible. And that's what the Western society is, or Jordan, Western culture. Jordan Peterson makes a fantastic argument in that. And I don't know if, if you're taking a chapter out of that book as far as what Jordan Peterson argues, but the Bible is not only true, but it is the foundation of truth. It's the measuring stick by which we understand and determine whether that's real or not because it was the first book published it was the first book that that um, started to knit society together and and to try to give some type of understanding about how we measure what is good what is bad right and wrong and so i that's the underpinning of everything that we understand and, and the lens by which we look through to interpret the world look at our legal system you know, when you, when you take a, a, an oath, you place your hand on the Bible, and you're in court. I mean, you, you is that not... You don't intertwined? place your hand on the Bible anymore in court? Anymore? No, you just raise your hand to the square, but... Okay, I'm thinking when, when you do an oath. But but what, what's, what's in, interesting, though, is that is also a symbol that comes from the Bible, raising your right hand oh. and swearing an oath. And so even, even though it's unintentional in our society that these traditions carry on, it still stems from the Bible, exactly what Adam was saying. It, it lays the foundation for everything that we do. I did have a question for Gracie, though. Okay, Gracie, you ready? Mm-hmm. Okay, so Gracie, you just got back um, from your mission, and you were out for, let's say, a, a year and a half, roughly. Months. Yep, 
18 mm-hmm. months, a year and a half, roughly. Now your plan is to go back. You you took kind of like a sabbatical from college, right? That's exactly what it was. <laughs> sabbatical. And now you're going back pretty soon. And so my question to you is, what would happen if on your drive back to college, you get in a car accident and you go to the hospital? Who's going to be able to deal with your bank account? Who's going to be able to deal with talking to the doctors on your behalf legally? That was a great question. That is a great question. That's why I asked it. (laughs) Well, lucky for me, I was actually interning here uh, right when I turned 18. So roughly the week I turned 18 and legally became an adult or close to one, I was able to sign my healthcare power of attorney, my power of attorney. Um, So that way, you know, if that should happen, my parents can still speak for me and, you know, who did, who did you name as your agent under your power of attorney, your mom or your dad? <laughs> Her favorite one. Huh. Mom. Yeah. <laughs> or you, you can make them agree. Mm. You know, everything has to be in agreement, right? Oh. This is a huge issue for a lot of college kids. So they, they graduate from high school. Most of them will turn 18 around that time. And then they go off. And um, I've had cases where mom and dad come to me or call me saying, hey, my son or my daughter at ASU or U of A or wherever they are in the country at college has had a medical issue and the doctors won't, won't help us. They won't listen to us. They won't give us any information. A lot of people don't recognize that once a person turns 18, they're an adult now and they speak for themselves. And if they don't have something legally in place, like a power of attorney for finances or for healthcare, then nobody can speak for them without going to court. You'd have to go and get a guardianship uh, through a court system. So luckily you were in a position where you're so smart and you knew what to do when you turned 18. But a lot of kids, not that they're not smart, but they just don't, it's not something on their radar. And I don't think a lot of parents understand it either. And they, along with all the other things that they have to worry about by sending their kids off to school, that's probably not on the top of their mind. They probably don't even understand that that's going to happen. So those that are listening, if you have college-age kids or you have an 18-year-old or soon-to-be 18-year-old, that's something you really need to think about is helping that 18-year-old get the proper legal structure in place so that if something happens to them, and it happens all the time, especially when kids during breaks and stuff, they go on spring break or they go on this, that, or the other, they're traveling around or uh, they run into fraud issue, let's say. Um, that happened to me when I was in school. Somebody, I had a fraud issue on my bank account, wiped out my bank account, um, and so things like that is you, it's really helpful to have a power of attorney or a helper, just like your parents have been helping you all this time. They can continue to legally help you if needs be, if something happens like that. And, uh, so those that are listening that have kids that age or even beyond that, if they've turned 18 and they don't have something in place like that, it's very wise for them to do that kind of stuff. And is it hard Gracie, was it hard to do all that? Not at all. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty easy and we make it a lot easier if you just come and see us, we'll go through what that particular individual needs and then we can we can put together a plan that will work for them and make it nice and simple, mm-hmm. but uh, give you some peace of mind as well. That's all the time that we have for today. This is Life, Death, and the Law, 560 AM, KBLU. If you have questions or want to know more about something that was discussed today, please call the law firm of Decent Garner & Hanson at 928-783-4575 or visit yumaestateplanning.com.